0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Activist, scholar, educator, critic, and publisher, Dr. Debbie Reese, is an enrolled member of northern New Mexico's Nambe Pueblo tribe. During her time as an assistant professor in American Indian Studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, her research focused on how Native Americans are represented in children's literature, from books for infants up through and including the young adult genre. She's the author of the critically acclaimed blog, American Indians in Children's Literature, which she began in 2006 as a professor. And she's a founding member of the Native American House and the American Indian Studies Program at that college. Debbie has conducted workshops designed to help participants gain awareness about issues like stereotyping, insider-outsider perspective, and appropriation of stories. Here is an interesting statistic, to say the least. In 2014, just 17 children's books were written or illustrated by Native people. Debbie is also on several boards, including Reading is Fundamental, Reach Out, and Read American Indian Alaska Native. So, Debbie, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm guessing, growing up, that you didn't see yourself in any children's books.
1: That's right, I didn't. I did not have that experience that most white kids in this country have.
0: And what did that mean to you? What did you think when you were growing up, that this was just the way it should be?
1: No, I don't think that awareness of of uh, what that meant, that phrase that we have today, mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors, was something that was on my mind as a kid growing up on the reservation. I really liked to read, and so I liked books and read a lot of books, but the kinds of things that I saw in books and on television that were, quote unquote, Indians, I knew they weren't real because I knew what we were and what we looked like and what we did. And so all those things that I saw, I think I as an adult, I look back on them and I think, so how did I think about them? Because I don't have a record of that. And it's not something that I ever talked with with my parents. So my um, adult way of thinking about that is that those were things on TV and I knew that things on TV weren't real. And so when my daughter was in school, I used a phrase, TV Indians, that stereotypes are TV Indians, things that aren't real. Um, So the stereotypical things that were in children's books and on TV, that's how I thought about them. I do have memories of books from that time period that came to me as an adult also, um, that are quite interesting. When I was teaching the children's literature courses at the University of Illinois, one of the assignments was for students to bring in a book from home about Native Americans, and uh, that was always fascinating to see what kids, what my students would bring in. These were primarily undergraduate students from Chicago, because most of the students at the University of Illinois are from Chicago area. Well, one day, one young woman brought in a book that just, I was seized by it immediately because it was an instant recognition of something from my own childhood. And that book was called Little Owl Indian. Um, And the Indians in there were like neon pink. They almost glowed. Um, They were very, 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 very red, very saturated colors. I had memorized that book in first grade and do not remember it. Did not remember that until I saw the book. So it was one of those kind of trigger things that, you know, your things that are in your head that you don't know are there. Until or dormant, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so I looked at that book and I was like, oh, I remember that book. And um, it's a horrible book. It, it came out in 1959, which is actually the year that I was born. I was in first grade in 1964. And so I, I uh, wondered now as an adult scholar researcher, looking back on that, did the librarian at our day school, because I was at a government school in first grade, bring that book in because he had just read that groundbreaking article, The All-White World of Children's Books. Uh, um, I wondered about that. I asked him, because he's still alive, mm-hmm. um, and he said, no, no, it's just a book that came out. I don't remember that book, he said, but in first grade, I did really well, and the the uh, teacher wanted me to do something at the end of the year uh, assembly, and she and the librarian talked and they came up with how about if she recites a book and they picked that book and i don't have a memory of doing it i just have a memory of the book Uh, but now as an adult looking back at that i'm horrified um, at it and not angry at either the librarian or the teacher because i think um there was a period when there was not that much awareness about what accuracy or authenticity was about um, within the people
0: that were working in my school district. What was growing up like for you in Northern New Mexico?
1: I grew up on a, on a, on a reservation and growing up was wonderful. There, the Pueblo people, the Pueblo nations of New Mexico are unlike a lot of the other tribes in the country because we were not moved from our homelands. So the places that had long standing and very powerful significance to me as a young person being taught how to be Young woman of that particular tribal nation, mm-hmm. I had access to everything. By that, I mean, across the river from my house are the ruins of one of our sites that are hundreds of years old. Um, there are places on our reservation that I can go to that have that kind of meaning and significance. Um, and that's not the case for a lot of other tribal peoples in the country who who did go through removals. So it was very affirming. Uh, learning how to be a Pueblo child and a Pueblo woman, there are things we don't talk about because of exploitation. Mm -hmm. So what I'm talking about is ceremonies and and things like that that I don't share publicly because they have been appropriated and exploited historically and to the present day. In particular, they were appropriated uh, by ethnographers in the 1800s, and some of that became laws that uh, you know, Congress passed laws and policies were written that prevented us from doing our ceremonies. So, what I mean I wouldn't share is what we actually did. Or what, mm-hmm. You know, I'm keeping that back from you. And actually, what I have done as a scholar is, uh, I think uh, I already mentioned Rudine Sims Bishop's metaphor of windows mirrors and sliding glass doors. To that, I add curtains because there are things that we don't share. And I think every people does that around the world uh, in every neighborhood. There are things we don't share. There are private things. And so curtains is something that I've added to that metaphor as things that we don't share.
0: Right. And I don't know that, that we have to share everything.
1: We don't. And it's interesting that that we see so many people in the United States saying that, well, you are like you're you're uh, against freedom of speech and things of that sort. And they that's don't how they thinking.
0: interpret this, that you're. Yeah. Against freedom yeah. Of speech? When, yeah. Yeah. You've been on the receiving end of that kind of.
1: Oh, yeah. Judgment? Sure. Things like that. Well, if you're not going to share everything, then um, you are against free speech. And I think, no, wait a minute. Let's think about all the things that get donated to libraries from this or that family that the family can say, well, we're not going to share this part. We want it preserved, but it's not for public consumption. Um, There's all kinds of examples of that. You can't go into the Vatican without lots of permissions. So society is really ignorant about the ways that it's... uh, sets up its rules and how it's protecting what it doesn't want shared but when other people do that it is seen as anti-free speech or anti-first amendment mm. and yeah. censorship you know if I'm if I say you can't talk about that they think I'm censoring trying to censor them so when I critique children's books that have things in them that should not be in there anytime there's something with ceremony in there unless it's a person of that nation who is writing that book then I say that's a concern because there are things that I could talk about and that I would talk about if I was a children's book writer. Um, And I know what I will not share because I have been told what cannot be shared. So it's an interesting. It is. Yeah, because I think writers who are raised with their own tribal nations know what can and cannot be shared because they have that same history as, as we do. And they're careful about that. Um, white writers will go to the library and pull out some of those bo- volumes that got published in the 1800s. And they will think that perhaps they can use those things, and they use them. They don't know what they're doing. The people that collected them in the 1800s did not know what they were looking at. So you have layer on layer on layer of misrepresentation.
0: Have you tried to deal with that misrepresentation, or is that just such an overwhelming task?
1: When I see it in a children's book, I call it out. I have one article, for example, that came out in Language Arts, which is the journal for elementary school teachers, published by the National Council for Teachers of English. And in that one, I, I looked. I did a close analysis of two children's picture books that draw from the work of an ethnographer called Frank Hamilton Cushing, who was out at Zuni Pueblo, um, in the 1800s. A horrible person, didn't know what he was doing, what he was observing, but wrote this stuff up as though this was the real deal. And so writers use his volumes, and um, he had things wrong. And then they try to reshape the content in his books for today's readers. And because they're white women, mostly (laughs) writing for white readers, mostly, they add and tweak those stories in ways that would make sense to a white audience. And that just takes them even further away from the actual um, story as told by people of a particular place.
0: I'm curious, as you were talking, do customs differ between Pueblo nations?
1: Yes, and that's, that's part of why this is all so very difficult and, and massive. Um, at my Pueblo, there are there's an upper village and a lower village. At both um, the upper and the lower village, we speak the same language. That language is Tewa. It's spelled T-E-W-A. Um, there's 19 pueblos in New Mexico. Four of them speak Tewa, and the other 15 speak a different language. Wow. And in, in, in terms of these ceremonies, there are ways we do things at the upper village that are different from the way they're done at the lower village. So when we're talking about diversity and accuracy, it gets exponentially difficult when you think about the fact that we, though we have over 500 federally recognized nations in the United States today, that 500 isn't an actual reflection of the diversity within any of those named entities.
0: When you were growing up, did you have a bent in terms of education, not as a child necessarily, but did you you have a sense of what it was you wanted to do?
1: Oh, I knew from the beginning I wanted to be a teacher.
0: And that was just such a given for you, right? No It was brainer. very much
1: a given. Mm-hmm. I, would, I, I really liked my first grade teacher um, and what we were doing at school. And, when, and I'm the oldest. I have younger siblings. So I'd go home and I would be And you teacher.
0: play school? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we did
1: that classic play school kind of thing.
0: And so when you got older, you knew you were going to go to college. Did you stay in New Mexico?
1: Well, that's an interesting story in itself. My dad was a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Very smart man, who had a family before he finished college. Um, so all during my high school years, my dad was taking night classes from the University of New Mexico while working full time as a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he, he he was a smart guy. I was I liked science and math too, and I was oh, the idea. Some of the ideas that were were circulating in society then were trying to get more women into science and engineering. And my dad established a program at the University of New Mexico called the Native American Program in um, the College of Engineering. And he was recruiting Native kids, men and women from all around the country to go to that uh, program. And he recruited me. And so <laughs> I, I went there for my dad. For one year, but was miserable because uh-huh. what I wanted to do was be a teacher, and so I quit. I dropped out for a while and then uh, went back to school and got my got my degree in teaching. And my dad and I graduated from college. In
0: the same commencement exercise. Isn't that wild? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So you get your degree and you begin to teach, but clearly not on the college level right away, right?
1: Right. No, I taught taught elementary school in Albuquerque for a while and then went to the uh, University of Oklahoma to get a master's degree in education. And uh, so for that, I was teaching in Anadarko, Oklahoma, at Riverside Indian School, which is a boarding school set up by the federal government.
0: So how did you morph into your chosen field now. Does this Was this some kind of a mission that you had? Was it something that was maybe growing and brewing within you?
1: I guess that it was. I liked teaching and I wanted to make a difference in what kids were learning. And uh, I really liked children's books. So when I was going to go to graduate school, I was going to study family literacy. That, that That's the theoretical idea for that is, you know, parent and child sitting together to read. Um, so I was going to study that. I want to learn more about that. But I got to the University of Illinois, and they had a mascot. Chief Wick. what is this? <laughs> Though it's officially no longer the mascot at the university, there's still, there's still people that dress up that way, and it's still very much a part of the campus um, climate. I, I'm a firm believer that children's books do a lot of work in society that we learn from children's books, and they shape the way we look at the world. So I started looking at the native content of children's books, and I completely got it. I understood why people would like a stereotypical mascot because they're stereotypical mascot-like images all over the place.
0: And you had no clue?
1: Well, I don't think I—I I, I don't think I had that level of awareness of it, okay. and how much a difference it made. Because growing up in New Mexico, you know, there was not a concern about stereotypes shaping my life as a student or as a as a teacher there. But when I got to Illinois, and there were there are no Native people in Illinois right now because the government moved them all out. The ignorance was incredible. Mm. The people were absolutely shaped by that kind of image. So that's why I started looking carefully at books and realizing how much work images do in shaping what people know about other, especially when they don't have other right there next door.
0: So then this began a fire within you, obviously.
1: It did, yeah. It did. I I shifted from family literacy to studying uh, the ways that Native people are represented in children's books. Easy to uh, find lots of data on how bad the, the images were then um, very disappointing to find that native people had been working on this for hundreds of years and that we were still in that place in the 90s that we were 100 years prior to that and it, so that was disheartening and and just recently I was writing. well now I'm working on a chapter on nonfiction in children's books and it's and I'm I, I wrote the chapter and I sent it in and and they said, Well, you didn't talk about we need you to list the stereotypes and I just like hung my head. Mm-hmm. So I feel like again we still have to list the stereotypes.
0: Yeah. Because... yeah. And
1: it's it was it's clear, you know, that were I wasn't upset with them. It was just a realization that that I made that I'm I'm suffering from fatigue of <laughs> right. having to write the same thing over and over again and it's very, very disappointing.
0: How hard was it to teach a course in American Indian Studies at the University of Illinois? That clearly was your idea, correct?
1: Well, because we had that mascot, it was clear um, in the years of activism that Native students, and there were very few of us, but but we were willing to go into classrooms and to go into the community, to meet with the board of trustees of the university, to meet with the chancellor, the, all the power people. We were willing to do that. And uh, Native students had been doing that since the 90s, and uh, I came in in the late 90s, and and we kept doing that. And, and it was so clear that there had to be at the University of Illinois uh, studies program. So I started with uh, other people here to try to get us there, um, to get that into place. Even now, and I'm 58, but I've been living in Champaign-Urbana for 20 some years now. Uh, I think, do I really want to go outside my front door today? Um, uh, It's all been, uh, I believe it's all been exasperated by the current climate politically.
0: Everything old is new again, huh?
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of the gains that we made, for example, at the University of Illinois in establishing that program and getting rid of that mascot, that we're seeing the backlash now with the people who, thought, well, I'm not racist and Trump's my man. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And and so I think that I, I think that a lot of the gains that we made in the country, we're seeing the backlash for that.
0: Now. I think you're right. So you talk about, the struggle, and then you are teaching American Indian studies. What was that experience like for you at a school like the University of Illinois?
1: Well, it was an elective. So people that took it wanted to know. Um, And uh, so it usually went very well. People, what I tried to do was have students to think carefully about how much they see stereotypical imagery all around them. Part of what I do, what I was doing as a professor, but also on my blog is to get people to see the bad and Mm -hmm. know the good Mm -hmm. um, so that they can they can push aside the bad and look for the good Um, my students were were always amazed once they start paying attention how much you see stuff and hear stuff um, if you're paying attention so like going to the grocery store and the calumet baking powder has a big mascot head on it Land O'Lakes butter the, the yes, Indian feed yes. on that. Right. So if you just if they started paying attention, they could see these things all around them. Um, I was watching a video last night uh, just for pleasure, but it's never Just uh, is very rarely going to sail as a pleasurable moment (laughs) because off the reservation, on the warpath, all of these phrases that are very, very loaded once you understand where they come from are part of American speech. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm often yanked out of a show that I'm enjoying because somebody has
0: said. Something like that, yes, and people are so dismissive of that, or what what's your problem with this? you know uh, what's the big deal, and what an uphill battle that must be for you
1: one of the major problems that that I've been writing about for uh many years is. The love that Americans have for Little House on the Prairie. Um, that book is inaccurate. It has factual errors in it. And yet people think, oh, but that was Laura's life. And I said, no, that was not Laura's life. That's fiction. And it's bad fiction because it misinforms you, an American, about the history of this country. Um, it is an industry all its own and it's doing so much damage to. It every American citizen who believes what they read in that book.
0: So not only was it the book, but it was a television show as well.
1: Right, the television show. You got a double whammy cookbooks.
0: with that. Mm. Oh,
1: it's yeah, it's a little industry. There there are um, people love that book and that series, and the adults write books about that. The, the nostalgia for something that never was in this country is right there in that book.
0: How has your blog changed things, do you think? People fear my
1: blog, and I mean by people, (laughs) by people I mean um, publishers and writers. They fear that I am going to look at their book and write about it, and uh, they should should be be afraid. Yeah, right. They should be afraid because they should do better. So there are publishers who are afraid, but there are many and a growing number who I hear from, who are glad for some free and easy resource Mm. (laughs) to help them not make those same mistakes um, that have been made for hundreds of years. So yes, my blog is doing a lot of interventions that there, so it it makes interventions in inside of a publishing house and it makes them on award committees too. There are uh, the major award programs that give books out every year and they they read my blog to see if I've had anything to say about that new book that they're considering for an award. And many have been set aside because of that.
0: Well, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, this rather chilling statistic of 17 children's books written or illustrated by Native people in 2014.
1: Yeah, the numbers don't change. One of the fascinating statistics to me is that Canada blows the United States right out of the water in terms of what they're publishing. There are far more very good books coming out of Canada than there are in the U.S. That is uh, something I'm trying to understand better. Um, The populations are very different. Um, I want to... look and see what the ratios are to see how many First Nations people there are in Canada compared to their overall population. One thing I know for sure is that in Canada, the um, the government there subsidizes the arts and so small publishers can get federal funding from the Canadian government to mm-hmm. help them publish books and mm-hmm. so, th- so there's all these small publishers that are publishing native written books in Canada. Um, I work with uh, Kathleen Horning at the CCBC on looking at that difference each year. That didn't used to be part of the statistics that they kept up at the uh, uh, CCBC. It is now because I said, Katie, we have to figure out what's going on here because Canada's doing way m- more than we are here. Let's start counting those differences. And so, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting difference too.
0: You know, it's interesting also that publishing is one thing, distribution is another. And you, you think that you have one hurdle, but then there's still another mountain to climb.
1: Yeah, there is another. And the word of mouth is really important. And I think social media is helping us with that tremendously. the uh, The publishers have marketing budgets, and so they put their money behind certain books, and those have massive distribution before the books come out, and all kinds of gimmicky kinds of uh, websites um, that go along with that, and we don't see that with with, uh, Native writers and their books. They will publish some, um, not anywhere near as many as come out of Canada, and Canada's got a much smaller population than we do, of course. But uh, they just don't get the visibility um,
0: that they should have. Why haven't you written any children's books?
1: I absolutely respect the training and the art of
0: writers. Uh-huh.
1: Um, yeah, that, that is a very common thing. Well, you have studied these books forever. Why don't you do that? I am not trained as a writer. So that's and... not
0: a natural act for you? No, it's not. In spite of the not. fact that you do write, but that's a different in almost a different genre, yeah.
1: Mine is to boost Native writers, and don't want to say bash, but that's kind of what I do. Okay. Bash non-Native writers who are writing stereotypical, biased, inaccurate kinds of books about Native people.
0: And does that cross over into other forms of media, film, television? Yeah. Because that's also a tough road to hoe. Yes, it is.
1: It is, Um, and and I don't do much on that, but there are people that do. Uh, Do you do a lot of speaking engagements? I do, yeah. Do you see progress? I do see progress, and the progress that I see is that we have some books get pulled from the market. I, I do work with a network of women, primarily women. We have been calling ourselves a diversity Jedi uh, <laughs> for a few years because a white writer tried to call us stormtroopers. Oh, I think. Uh, mm-hmm, um, so mm-hmm. we said not nah, that. Really? Um, anyway, uh, I work with a group of women and uh, coalitions of people that are interested in pushing this as hard as we can. And we have seen some gains. We have seen several books that get pulled from the market by their publishers. And that sort of thing has never happened before. I also see change when uh, writers look at something that um, I've written and they think, oh my gosh, I did that in my book. I have to fix that. And so we have writers who understand that low man on the totem pole is not okay thing to use.
0: Uh (laughs) And so
1: they, and they, they have used it in their book. So they will talk to their publisher and say, I need that phrase out of there because that's not okay. OK, so I've seen a lot of small changes like that and larger ones where books get pulled.
0: So much is taken for granted or, or just dismissed. Yeah. And it's your job, no pun intended, to educate all of us. I mean, I think it's sort of fascinating that a book gets published and, and then all of a sudden, ooh, didn't mean to do that. You know, it, that just doesn't make any sense
1: that points to lack of education lack of knowing in publishing houses too so there's so the education does have to happen in a very broad way very big deep way uh, so I'm glad that 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 you've had me on your show so that people who listen to your show will Look at my website and look at websites like mine where, because the knowledge is out there. It's not like an unknowable thing. You just have to know that you have to look for it. Yeah, People have to be able to say, I thought I knew something about this and clearly I don't, but here's the place where I can find out. One of the resistance, one of the kinds of resistance that um, writers of color and native writers get is that our The real lives that we share or that we advocate for in children's books, white people will say, well, that's too dark. I can't give that to my kid. And biting my tongue on on cursing because these are our lives and you want to protect your children from our lives?
0: Hello, yeah. How patronizing. And how just, again, I keep using the same word dismissive. I mean, it's mind-boggling. It just seems like this should all be such a no-brainer, but it isn't because you're working and you're dancing as fast as you can here. Yes. Yeah. What's coming up for you? Anything special you want to share?
1: I'm going to give the keynote speech next summer at the Children's Literature Association annual meeting and also on the President's Panel for the American Library Association's meeting happening next summer as well. So two big, high-profile things. I, I do think that the American Library Association is uh, a place that is in growth. I'm not so sure about some of the research associations that I'm a member of. I think that there's a lot of them fall back to the First Amendment speech Uh, and people being mm -hmm, too sensitive. mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. so whiteness is very powerful and I'm very aware of when I'm being the token um, and I will say so. It's uncomfortable for white people and it sure as heck is for me too. But comfort is not a good place to be when we're trying to make the world a better place.
0: What a great way to end. Debbie Reese, I so enjoyed meeting and getting to know you and keep doing what you're doing. We need more Debbie Reese's in our world, don't we?
1: We do indeed. Thank you for having me.
0: Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.